Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our lead pastor, Pastor Greg Brown, with this week's sermon. Uh, we are going to be in Mark 8, 27 through 30 this morning, a short passage, and we are going to dive straight in. So go ahead and tap, flip, uh, swipe, whatever, uh, over to your, the appropriate uh, place there, Mark 8, 27 through 30. Uh, if you don't have a Bible or would prefer to uh, just keep your eyes uh, on the screen or whatever, you can do that. The scriptures will be up there uh, as well. Oh, by the way, if you're new here, my name is Greg Brown. I'm the lead pastor here at Mosaic, and uh, it's a pleasure to be able to, to address you with the Word of God today. I count it as a real honor, and I mean that. Um, so we're going to go ahead and read this. It's, uh, again, Mark 8, 27 through 30. If you could stand with me, if you're able, uh, as we read the Word of God, we do this out of respect for God's Word. It's inerrancy and perfection. Uh, God has spoken it, and so we, we give it the, the respect that it's due uh, as we stand. So again, Mark 8, 27 through 30 says this, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked the disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. Asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord God, we pray that you would bless this word this morning, that your word, that Lord God, you would be glorified as we seek you to know you in your word and what you have given to us here. I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to see the Christ, not just an anointed one, not just a prophet, not just a teacher, not just a king or a priest, but the king, the priest, the prophet, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would lead our hearts, guide us, Lord God, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would, would pierce those hearts of stone that we might become hearts, uh, might have hearts of flesh. Lord, just give us your grace this morning, I pray. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. When you think about Jesus, what words do you use to describe him? What what might you call him? Obviously, there's the Christ. We just read it. But there's some other words, too. I think there's words like the Bible uses. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, Emmanuel, God with us, conquering king, redeemer, Christ, the Messiah, otherwise known as the anointed one. But who do you say that he is? I asked that question just a moment ago. When you think of Jesus, what do you say about him? Who do you say that he is? Notice that I'm not simply asking who is Jesus. I'm asking the more personal question, who do you think he is? Now, you might think I'm veering off into that nasty thing called relativism over here, but that's not the case. Who you say Jesus is matters. Who you say Jesus is matters. This isn't a relativistic question. 
though many have made it out to be that. Actually, years ago, I, uh, I picked up a, a magazine off of a, a shelf. It was an impulse buy. Uh, I don't really know why I got it, just other than just like the theological uh, curiosity of the thing. Uh, but uh, I picked it up. It, it was a Time magazine, and on the front of it was a depiction of Jesus, which should have been my first clue that this is probably not a great place to be. Uh, but uh, it's a depiction of Jesus, and then underneath it, it says, who do you say that I am on Time magazine, right? I should have known what the content was going to be here, right? I should have known that the magazine would be filled with various secular opinions about who Jesus was, really just conjecture and opinions and my, I admit that my, uh, my memory of the articles themselves is kind of fuzzy at best, but I, I don't, and I don't remember, though, many of the, art, the article's authors um, actually answering the question who Jesus is. They merely answered the question or conjectured about the question who Jesus was, right? That's an interesting just little aside there. They, they were simply asking who Jesus was. They had, there was no orthodoxy in here. They didn't say, who is Jesus, as if he still lives. They were just asking the question, who was this person that may have existed? It was pretty, it was pretty unfortunate, the whole thing. Um, and so they, they, they got to this sort of thought of like, well, he's this, he's this historical figure and or maybe he's a legend or whatever else, but they really were worried about who Jesus was more than who he is. And the reality is, as Christians, we have to be asking the question, who is Jesus? I mean, is, was, is to come, okay? Anyway, the reality is, though, that like a lot of people want to put out there that Jesus kind of is who you want him to be, right? That this question even maybe like phrased like the Time Magazine put it, like kind of begs the question, who do you want Jesus to be? Not just who do you say he is, but who do you want him to be? And so the system of belief sort of pushes you into this idea that you can construct a Jesus that kind of jives with who you are. But the reality is that Jesus doesn't just matter for you personally. The, the question of who Jesus is doesn't matter just for you personally. It matters both personally and corporately. Who you say Jesus is matters in two incredibly important ways. And I'm not going to bury the lead today. These are my main points of application. If you're going to take anything away, let's, you can take these things away. Uh, but I'm going to try to explain them as we go along. Two points here. Who you say Jesus is matters because your salvation depends on it. Who you say Jesus is matters because your salvation depends on it. Second, who you say Jesus is matters because the salvation of others depends on it. We're going to circle back to these at the end. But if you just if you want to walk away with something today, you want to write something down, you've already got it. I've already given you the, the cookie at the end of the maze. All right. But before we do that, before we circle back to these at the end, I, I want to just take a moment to examine the text at hand. Verse 27 of Mark chapter 8 says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to uh, the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? Interesting, there was uh, a conflict uh, in, in Caesarea, or in a place called Caesarea, and there's actually two Caesareas. There's Caesarea Philippi, which is named after Philip, and then there's another Caesarea that's a port. It's weird. Why would you name two things that close together? Anyway, that's a whole other deal. I'm just 
thinking out loud. But verse 27 is very interesting because of that last question. Jesus asked the question, who do you say, or who do people say that I am? Who do those people out there say that I am? He asks this question. He's kind of doing a survey, as it were. He's, he's saying, okay, like, let's, let's get like kind of the general warp and woof of the people that are, that are out there. And statistical data here uh, is it, kind of a funny thing because you take a very small subset of people who have talked to the disciples, for, who, for, for example, and you ask them a question like, who do you think Jesus is? And then you extrapolate that data to understand what the broader opinion is, right? It's like Jesus is putting his fingers on the pulse of the people that they've encountered over the course of his ministry. He's saying like, who do people say that I am? Who, like, what do you think people are saying? This is actually a really good way to understand yourself in light of others. This is just a side note. This is just fun stuff that, that, you, might, that you might enjoy. The, like get, if you want to see how you're perceived by others, ask your friends who people say that you are. Ask somebody who's very trustworthy in your life to, to tell you what other people say about you, right? This is very, very helpful because likely people aren't going to come to you with all of their grievances, right? Like, but you're going to get to know all the worst parts of you if you talk to a trusted person and ask them, who do people say that I am? Just an interesting thing. I, I think that Jesus uh, is doing this, though, not because he was just curious about what people said about him, okay? I don't think that Jesus, being Jesus, was really all that worried about what people were saying about him. But what was really happening here was he was trying to, to, to pull out what was happening in the course of the disciples' lives, these four verses here are like the mountaintop of Mark's gospel, okay? The mountaintop. Everything from Mark 1.1 to this point, especially verse 29, is leading up here. And then once we get past this point, everything is sort of downhill toward the cross. I say downhill. You get what I mean. From beginning of Mark to here, there's just this progression and so it's a critical point for Jesus' disciples because Jesus is finally telling them, hey, like, look at how the people perceive me. How do you perceive me? He's asking them to draw a, a, uh, a contrast between who the people say he is and who they say he is. He's going, do you feel differently? The people say I'm this, but do you feel differently? I said it last week uh, as we were going through the, the previous passage. This whole like, section is sort of this, uh, this teaching moment of Jesus who says, uh, I, like, I am opening your spiritual eyes gradually. It's progressive, okay? And he's, he's going here and he's saying, okay, like I've opened your eyes a bit, but you might not understand how much I've opened your eyes. Let's, let's do a check. Let's see what's going on. It's like lifting weights, right? Jordan knows about this. Jordan's doing kids, but he knows all about the lifting of the weights. Uh, he's, very, uh, he's a very fit man. Um, anyway, I don't know where I'm going with that. Uh, but it's like, <laughs> it's like lifting weights, okay? 
It's like lifting weights. And I, like, believe it or not, I have done some lifting of weights very far in the past, okay? But I understand this to a degree. While you're in the gym, you strain and you struggle, and it's, and it's super consistent because you're always sort of increasing the weight a little bit, increasing your reps a little bit, increasing intensity a little bit. And you're, so you're always sort of taking yourself to this, this point of breaking, right, consistently. So every time you go to the gym, you ultimately, if you're doing it right, you ultimately fail, right? Because going to, like, working out to failure is how you get your muscles to grow. grow. And so you go in there and you push and push and push and you consistently feel these things, this feeling of, of, of I'm not quite where I want to be, but then you're walking in the, in the parking lot at Home Depot one day and you see, uh, a, you know, a, a little old lady uh, trying to pick up a bag of concrete and she's struggling, right? And you're like, that looks heavy. I should, being the good Christian person that I am, I should probably go over there and help her, right? So you walk over and you expect to kind of strain under the weight of this 50 pound bag of, of concrete, but you pick it up with relative ease and you put it in the truck. This is kind of what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, here's a test. Let me show you how, how far you've come. Let me show you how much you've grown. Let me show you the contrast between who everyone else says that I am and how much I have opened your eyes to the truth now. So the, the disciples, if I, if I can mix metaphors here, needed this spiritual eye exam to really understand what was happening. And so Jesus asks them the baseline question. In any sort of survey, you need a baseline, right? You, you need the normal. So he asks them the baseline question, who do the people say that I am? And it's interesting because Jesus' survey goes about like you might expect it to, if, even if he was taking a, a survey on the earth today. Again, and uh, if we look at uh, verse 28, it says, And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. Basically, they kind of got it all wrong. Well, not all wrong. They got it partially right, which is as good as wrong. Everybody seemed, interestingly, pretty certain that Jesus uh, was a prophet of some sort and, and probably somebody who had been raised from the dead. Um, that's an interesting one. Um, the most likely of these is probably, if you were going to conjecture about this, is probably Elijah. He didn't actually die, right? He was taken up in the chariot of fire. So perhaps God just sort of like popped him into, into existence, right? Uh, it was like time travel weirdness, right? Like he gets swept up in the, in the chariot of fire and... No, that's not actually what happened, right? People thought, though, that maybe that is what happened. Maybe God had taken Elijah from this point in, in the far past and then just plopped him down at this point in time. But they, they didn't have it quite right. Nobody was really proclaiming any of this stuff as certainty. They were just kind of guessing at who Jesus was. I guess, in reality, this is kind of far better than what we see today. I mean, and at least they understood that he was from God, right? They're like, oh, you're a prophet. Okay. Like that means that you have some relationship with the one true God. That's a good thing. Today, if you took the same survey, maybe you wouldn't get those same results. In academia today, there, there aren't many people who, who, who believe that Jesus didn't straight up, or straight up didn't exist though. Okay. Like you hear this all the time. Well, like people think that Jesus didn't exist. Most people actually believe Jesus did exist. But that's where it really ends. Like, there's a lot of conjecture from there. Um, they, they're pretty certain, like the historians who want to, to just pull from past data, they're pretty certain that Jesus was a real person. 
that, uh, that he just sort of, you know, he was a normal, everyday peasant in, uh, in you know, first century Palestine. Um, and not only that, but most historians also accept, interestingly, Jesus' baptism by John. They, they said that, like, nobody would write that Jesus was baptized by someone else unless it had actually happened, because that's kind of embarrassing to have your Savior baptized by another person. Like, we know that's not the reality, but they, they, they're like, okay, well, you wouldn't make that up. And uh, generally speaking, people uh, believe that Jesus is a good teacher and that he had disciples that gathered around him. And actually, people uh, do uh, agree that he was probably crucified on a cross. Okay, this is, this is like the general idea of what people have. Like, so the question of who do people say that I am, that question of who do people say that Jesus is, okay, he's a, he was a, a man who lived in the first century, taught some stuff, and died on a cross. They, they affirm these things. Just like the, the people of the first century here that Jesus was talking to, they get partially right. Those are all true things, right? Jesus was a good teacher. He did die on a cross. He did live then. He was a prophet, just like these people said he was. And yet, there's something wrong here. There's a, they haven't quite taken it far enough. And it's easy, I think, to, to, to say that Jesus was, uh, was all these you know, sort of baseline things. If you ignore everything except for maybe like the Sermon on the Mount and a few other key passages, then you can sort of pick these pieces of scripture that seem most mundane and attach those to Jesus and go, yeah, this is the historical Jesus. But we know better, don't we? He wasn't just a man. He wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just crucified on the cross. These are all true things, but... The reality is we can't get it partially right and expect to, to know Jesus, okay? The disciples were starting to have their eyes open and they were starting to see him for who he was, but the people, they got it partially right, but Jesus was trying to draw a contrast. They actually have it partially right, but that's as good as wrong. They don't actually know me, but he's trying to draw this conclusion that they do. Who do people say that Jesus is today? Again, there's some conjecture, or not conjecture, there's some uh, research that was done uh, on evangelical Christians, okay? This is an interesting point of fact. The question of who do people say that, that Jesus is? In 2020, there was a survey of people across the U.S., and 51% of respondents agreed or strongly agreed that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. If you pull up that... Slide right there. This is for evangelical Christians. 30% of evangelical Christians say Jesus was a good teacher, but he was not God. 30%. That means one in every three of us sitting in this room could possibly believe that Jesus was not God. You can't get it partially right. Those people over there are strongly in danger of hell. You can't get it partially right. This is disturbing at best. But it goes even further. That some more insidious things have even crept into the church. We see it all the time. You don't like Jesus teaching on divorce? He didn't mean it like it came across. He was obviously addressing something cultural. And 
of course, my divorce because we've fallen out of love becomes acceptable. Didn't like his teaching on divorce? You just leave it out. You make excuses. You don't like how Jesus teaches us to be lowly and meek? Just ignore it, and you're free to be a jerk for Jesus if you want. Just leave that part out. It's not really the, the Jesus of the scriptures. It's, you could just leave that out. We can demonize people all day if we want to, right? We call them names, and it's fine. Just be a Jesus macho man. This is, you, you, you might be sitting here going, well, like, this is kind of a straw man argument. No, this is real stuff. People go like, oh, yeah, I don't really like that teaching, and so I'm going to make excuses. And so, oh, yeah, by the way, not sure about the whole, like, resurrection thing. Don't want to believe in Jesus' actual bodily resurrection. It's fine. Jesus was just a moral example of how you should, you should put, put your life on the line for others. You can follow his teachings without worrying about all the, the, the times he talked about dying and rising from the dead. You just ignore that stuff. It's fine. This happens all the time, not only in churches, not only in mainline Protestant churches, but in our own hearts. At times, we look at the scriptures and we go, I don't really like that right now. And if you let that in, you're in danger. You're in danger of not knowing Christ for who he is. The reality is that people who call themselves Christians are coloring far outside the lines of orthodoxy at this point. They say, I'm a Christian, but they don't know the real Christ. These people are no better off or maybe perhaps worse off than the people who said Jesus was merely a prophet in verse 28. But Peter, I love Peter. Peter is so like wishy-washy sometimes, like, but man, he gets it. When he gets it right, he gets it right. <laughs> I love it. Okay. He's a very bold man. So he gets it right in verses 28, 29 and 30. It says, and he asked them, that is the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, love these four words, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Man, you are the Christ. I've been just like hankering to preach this this one passage for weeks. Pastor Brandon can tell you. We've talked about it a few times. I'm like, you are the Christ. What, like this is like the first confession of faith that we find in scripture, right? Like this, this very succinct, like creedal statement, you are the Christ. In Matthew 16, 16, we get the, the, the full version. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Whew, even better. Way to go, Peter. <laughs> That's good. I mean, if this passage is kind of the mountaintop of Mark's gospel, then this phrase is like the peak, right? It's the highest point on the mountain. In fact, everything does kind of go downhill for Peter after this, uh, but that's when we come back to this in January. We often use this word, though, Christ. You are the Christ. Without really understanding what its meaning is, it's not Jesus' last name. Okay, a lot of people are like, well, it's like, it's, it's just, it's Jesus. Like, it's Mr. Christ, right? It's not, that's not the reality, okay? It's a title. Jesus, the Christ. Christ, that, that word comes from the Greek word Christos, which is the, the translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah. 
this word, Messiah, I'm just going to use the, the, the Anglicanized version, okay? Has, the, has a root in the Hebrew word. I'll use one more Hebrew word, matach. You got to get to use the sound. I love that. But it literally means to smear. It means to, to spread oil on a piece of bread. That's what, that's what this, this root word means. How interesting is that? Like you, you're starting with smearing oil. It's very mundane usage. It's a very mundane term. Mashach means smear. And so we begin to, to see the, the evolution of this word and the, the, how it becomes more and more particular as time moves on. Exodus 29.2 says, And unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared, that's the, that's the word there, with oil, you shall make them of fine wheat flour. That's, that, that's the use of that word. That's smeared. <laughs> Mashak. And then in Exodus 28.41, we get a little bit more particular usage. So we're walking our way into this, this idea of Christ. All right, 28.41 says, And you shall put, uh, put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons uh, with him, and shall anoint them. That's the word, anoint them, and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. This is where things really start hitting the ground. They're anointing or smearing oil on Aaron and his sons so that, why? So that they can be set apart, a visual setting apart consecration for God's good purposes. He says, I am pulling them out from the, the normal people of Israel and I am making them special, set apart for the purpose of being priests to my people. And so I'm going to give them the outward sign of this calling by smearing them with oil, by anointing them with oil. Later in, uh, in Leviticus 4.3, the word Messiah is used in a general sense. That uh, Mashiach is uh, used in this general sense. It says, in, uh, if, it, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. If it is the anointed, that's actually the word Messiah. Does that tweak you a little bit? Is that, like, do you, are you getting a little bit concerned? Don't be. It's okay. It simply means anointed one, okay? And so you get this idea of going from like smearing with oil to, to, to uh, setting someone apart for God's purposes. In fact, this sort of general term, uh, Messiah, is used throughout the Old Testament. Uh, for different people, um, some like a, a couple of surprising ones to me. Uh, Saul was a Messiah, little M, okay, little M Messiah, little M or little A anointed one, okay, uh, who was set apart by God for His purposes. Uh, likewise, Cyrus of Persia was also an anointed one. He was a, a little M. Don't don't misquote me here. All right, little M Messiah. Interesting stuff. We tend to use this word Messiah uh, as, in this very particular sense, and I think we should. That's okay. It's, it's sort of evolved over time, but the reality is that many people throughout the Old Testament were anointed priests, prophets, kings, and more. They were set apart. 
And so as priests, they would be set apart to intercede for the people on their behalf before God. And as prophets, they would be anointed and consecrated to pronounce God's judgment at his mercy. And as kings, they were anointed, set apart, made little m messiahs to execute his judgment. This is, the, this is where we get this concept of Messiah beginning to develop, okay? We go from the smearing of oil to God instituting this, this oil-based uh, anointing that happens and then moving from there into uh, people who are little m messiahs, little, m, or little a anointed ones. But then somewhere, my Daniel, for example, Daniel has a, has a Christ figure in there. But somewhere during, from the point that Daniel was written uh, through the intertestamental period until you get to the beginning of the, the Gospels, uh, this idea of a singular Messiah had developed. People had like sort of looked back on the scriptures with 2020 vision and gone, God's promising something. We're finally kind of getting it. Like we're, we're not quite fully there, but we're starting to understand what's going on. We're, going, we're looking back, rather than being in the middle of history, we're looking back at history and we're seeing how God orchestrated all these things. And so this idea of a singular big M Messiah, big A, big O, anointed one would come, big C Christ. And so this thought develops because people were reading verses like Genesis 3.15, where the Messiah is the snake crusher, the one that is anointed and set apart to defeat Satan and reclaim the kingship that Adam squandered. Get this idea of a coming king, a big K king, a big M Messiah who would come and finally fulfill all the promises that God had made to his people about having that everlasting kingship. And then in Isaiah 53, put verse five on the screen, I think. He's the suffering servant. He's the ultimate priest who takes away the sins of the people. This big M Messiah, this big C, Christ. And then in Deuteronomy 1818, he is the prophet like Moses, who will have the word, words of God in his mouth. As people began to put these things together over time and they, they experienced the oppression of history and they saw all these things and they, they started reading the prophets and they started to understand that God had not fulfilled all of his promises yet, they looked back and they said, there is one who is coming who will fulfill all of this for us. There is one who will be our prophet, our priest, and our king forever. This thought develops, and by the time we get to Mark, by the time we get to the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, we finally have developed this thought. And interestingly, Mark spends some time trying to, to make sure that his audience understands this, this thought. This isn't in my notes either, but like, Think about this, Mark 1, 1, it says, uh, I don't know, I think I have that up there. It says, this is the, uh, this is the gospel of Jesus, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, okay? He says Jesus Christ there in 1, 1. He doesn't use the word Christ again in his gospel until this very moment. He's developing this idea in the reader's mind that there is a Christ coming. There is one who is fulfilling all of the prophecies that God had given that there would be an anointed one, a Christ, a, or sorry, I should say the Christ, the Messiah. 
And so when Peter confesses, you are the Christ, he creates the very first Christian creed and he, and he, he says, oh, I've just, I, I've, my mind is blowing right now. I'm putting it all together, Jesus. You've opened my eyes. I'm actually seeing that all of these things in the Old Testament, I understand what you have done, that you've fulfilled the blinder seeing, you're proclaiming the kingdom. I see all of it now, just, I, I, it's barely there, but I see it. And guess what? I am confessing that you are the Christ, the promised one, the Messiah, the one who was to come, the one who is a prophet, a priest, and a king, the prophet, prophet, the priest, the king for our people. Whew, what a wonder, like that is a mountaintop moment, okay? I don't know why you guys don't get excited about this stuff. I get excited about it. And this this sort of proto-creed, you are the Christ. And by the way, Peter is saying, let me exclude this. Like he's saying you are the Christ, not just an anointed one, not just a Messiah, not just one who is set apart, but the one who is set apart. This, this is really the, 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 the most incredible little nugget of a Christian orthodoxy in four words. This is the thing upon which all of Christianity has always hinged. And in fact, it binds us together even to this day. No matter what sort of statement of faith you read, this is there. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah, the promised one, the suffering servant. If, they're an, if, if, if it's an Orthodox Christian church, they, they confess this very thing. The, uh, the London Baptist Confession of Faith uh, chapter 8, paragraph 1, which is a confession of faith that was created in 1689 by particular Baptists who uh, wanted to express what they believed about the Word of God. Uh, this is not an Ashley approved slide. Um, I, I made this uh, last night and I thought I was being creative, and I'm sorry. I'm subjecting, I'm subjecting your eyes to it. Um, two things I want to point out. It says, it pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain right? This is, this is consecration. This is anointing to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus. And then later to be the mediator between God and man, who the prophet, priest, and king, right? We see a line straight through every Christian creed because this is essential to our faith. Now, admittedly in this passage in the, in the LBCF, it's there's some more theology that was developed through Paul and, and the apostles, uh, but it's there. Prophet, priest, and king, the fulfillment. Okay. Earlier, I, I mentioned that, that who you say Jesus is matters. First, it, it, it matters for your salvation. Like I said, if you, if you don't believe this, if you don't believe that, that he is the Christ, the one that was promised by the scriptures, you cannot assuredly approach the throne of grace with boldness. If you don't believe in the Christ, the one who came and who died and who is now the, the king, prophet, and priest for his people, if you don't believe in that Jesus, you're in danger. It matters. Because a lot of people think that they're, they're saved by grace through faith, but they fail to connect faith with an object. The, the question for us is, in whom do we believe? Because you could say by grace through faith all day, 
And yet, if you do not have in Christ alone, you don't have, you don't have true faith. But the reality is most people believe in something. A lot of people in our world today tend to believe in themselves. You see this? When you go to the news today, and like it's, it's rampant, right? Like You just see it. There's this, uh, there's this secular humanism that is taking over our culture today. A lot of people also like to believe in human nature, sort of the, the crowd mentality, right? Like what the majority says goes or what the, whatever the, the loudest voices, really the loudest voices in the room say goes. You see a lot of this today. They believe maybe in positivity or karma or a general sense of morality. They believe in these things. And so they, they believe that perhaps they are saved, maybe not by grace, but through faith in these things, in themselves or through faith in human nature or through faith in, in positivity or karma or morality. Interestingly, even atheists believe in something. They believe in the natural world. It is a form of faith. They say, well, the natural world is trustworthy for my well-being and my happiness. Who I am, I can trust to the natural world. These are all forms of faith, but saving faith, saving faith, true faith is faith in Jesus, the Christ. Only by trusting and accepting all that he taught and all that he did and all that he is, only then can we attempt to claim to have saving faith. So the question here is, who do you say that Jesus is? Is the Jesus in your mind the Jesus of the Bible? Or is he a Jesus of your own imagination? Do you profess to believe in the Jesus of the Bible and yet hold some reservations about who he is or what he taught? Look, I'm not trying to say that your knowledge has to be perfect for salvation, by no means. In fact, when we come back to this chapter in January, we're gonna see that Peter's theology wasn't perfect. He believed in Jesus, he believed in the Christ, but he was still sort of figuring some things out. But if you consciously reject parts of who Jesus is, you are in danger of forfeiting your salvation. If you intentionally reject parts of who he is, you are in danger. You cannot have a little G God that you made up in your head and expect to be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven on the day of judgment. It's impossible. You believe in something else. You have an idol, not a Christ. But if you believe in the Christ who came, lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, rose from the grave and is seated at the right hand of God the Father and making intercession for his people, if you trust in him, the Christ, then you have every right, every right to be confident in your salvation. If you find yourself, though, at conflict with the Jesus of the Bible that I just described, today is the day to make a course correction to go, okay, I, let's just be honest with one another. Let's be, at least be honest with yourself. Do you believe in the Jesus of the Bible or do you believe in a little G God that you made up in your own head? Just be honest. Who is Jesus? Who do you say he is? Ultimately, who you say Jesus is matters. Because your salvation 
depends on it. But it's more than that. How could it be more than that? Because who you say Jesus is matters because the salvation of others also depends on it. Look, some of y'all know me. I am absolutely certain that God is sovereign over salvation. And yet, I am equally certain that God uses his people as a means by which he draws others into faith. Look, that means we have a clear responsibility to say clearly who Jesus is, both in word and in deed. James says, faith without works is dead. And while he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and I'm not going to try to equate what I'm about to say with Scripture, I do want you to hear me. Faith without words is equally fruitless. Our faith is based on words. That's why Jesus says, who do you say that I am? You have to use words to express this. Our faith is based on words, not feelings or anything else. Like We need to convey what we believe about Christ, both in word and in deed. This is incredibly important because Matthew 10, 33 says, whomever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Are you comfortable with this? Do you feel as though you have, you have said who Jesus is, both in word and deed? When people look at your life, do they see who Jesus is to you? When you talk to people, do they know who Jesus is by who you say he is? Do people see your, Jesus as your prophet? who declares the word of God to you, warning you away from sin and causing you to walk in obedience to God? Do they see Jesus as your priest who intercedes for you when you sin such that you are quick to apologize and instant in giving mercy when someone repents? Is Jesus your priest? Is he your king? to whom you live your entire life? Does your allegiance to him show in whatever you say and do? Do you live your life as if your citizenship is in the kingdom of God, or do you live it as if this world is your home? If not, if one of these things isn't true, if, if Jesus isn't your prophet, your priest, and your king, then ultimately this isn't just a you problem. It's an everyone else problem too. They don't know. Those people around you don't know Jesus because your life is inconsistent with the gospel you profess to believe. There's a difference here. And I, want, I want to put this out there. I know I'm sounding, I'm, I'm borderline legalistic here. All right, and I'm leaning in a direction. I, I want you to hear this. There's a difference between stumbling into sin and holding on to it with one hand while you attempt to hold on to Christ with the other. There's a difference. Which one are you doing? Are you still trying to hold on to sin? It's time to repent. It's time for repentance. Perhaps even with tears. I've been reading a book, um, listening to an audio book actually, uh, of Thomas Watson's The Doctrine of Repentance. Uh, what a wonderful title. It's actually very succinct for a Puritan. Um, this guy lived uh, in the 1600s, I believe, uh, and uh, he, he gives us six ingredients to repentance, and I promise I'm closing here. But I want you to see this. I want, 
I want you, if you, if you have held on to a, an image of, of God that is, that is wrong and uh, where you've shaved off the corners and you've made, uh, made up really uh, ultimately a, a God that, that makes you feel good about your sin, if you've made that up, it's time for repentance, right? Let me, let, me, let me just say this real quick before I get into this, okay? If you make up a God, all you're going to do is create a God who allows you to do all, all your favorite sins. That God is going to look just like you. You're no better off than the person who simply trusts in themselves, okay? But the Jesus of Scripture can save and does save. And so if we believe in him, that's amazing, and we get a chance, even now, even if, if you feel yourself being a little convicted in this moment, you have an opportunity to repent because our God is gracious and merciful toward those who repent. And so these are sort of six ingredients that uh, Thomas Watson says that there are to repentance, and I'm gonna go through these pretty quickly, but I, I hope that you'll, help, that you'll consider these uh, as, you, as you continue throughout your day. First, uh, we need to have sight of sin. This is what God's word brings to us. As we hear the word preached and as we hear it applied to our hearts, we begin to see our sin. So seek that. Look for it. Look for your sins. Second, you need to have sorrow for sin. You should be grieved that you have caused an affront to God, perhaps even to the point of tears. Third, you should confess your sin. It doesn't always mean that you have to go to someone else, but you should at least confess your sins before God. Admit it. He knows. There's no hiding it. You don't, don't be like Adam sewing fig leaves together, okay? Just go to God and say, I messed up. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And he is faithful to forgive as we trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Fourth, we should have shame for sin. Look, you should never be proud of your sin. I think there's a real problem with that in Christian circles today. There's become a little bit of a, a like, well, I'm just going to sin high-handedly. I'm going to bro broadcast my sins on Instagram or, or on Facebook or whatever else but because that makes me more authentic and real. That's baloney, all right? I'm not saying you should hide stuff, but what I am saying is you should have a godly, broken-hearted shame for your sin. Fifth, you should hate your sin. If we love sin, we will never get away from it you got to hate it. Turn your heart against it. And that's the th sixth one. We must turn from sin and turn to Christ. That is the Christ, the Messiah. So if you've been inconsistent, today is the day. Let's repent. Let's turn away from the little G gods that we've made up in our hearts. And if we do repent, then we are saying something even then about who Jesus is. Think about that. When we turn from sin, when we repent, and even when we go and confess our sins to others or we, we go and apologize to other people, we are saying something about who Jesus is because we are saying he is merciful and long-suffering and he loves his people and he draws them to repentance and forgives them. We're saying something very true about the Christ. This Christ the prophet, priest, and king, the son of the living God who takes away the sins of the world and intercedes at the right hand of God, this Christ is our savior and the savior of all who trust in him. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. 
For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.